Welcome to 100 Ways, your simple reminder that you are home wherever you are and that everything is right the way it is right now. I'm your host, Laura Christine, fellow explorer of consciousness and this amazing, beautiful world. Let's get curious, dive into the duh, and find out what's here for us today. Welcome to 100 Ways. This is your daily exploration of self and soul. I'm your host and fellow explorer, Laura Christine. Let's dive in and find our way home. Wow. This is an experience that most of us have not had and probably never will. And you have to listen until the end of this because... (laughs) The element of, wait, what did he just say? (laughs) Is that for real? Is like probably the highlight of this incredible in itself episode. Also, shout out to my friend Natasha. Girlfriend, this one is for you. Enjoy. (laughs) So in the absence of a visit to the Rinpoche, I had a fair amount of time. I think I had maybe three more weeks in Nepal and I once again was really intrigued by this idea of meditative austerities that were somewhat sort of performative (laughs) where people could see you and you could really really make a show out of how good you were at meditating (laughs) and so uh, the idea came to me at some point to go meditate by the stupa And I actually don't think that I was really trying to make a big deal out of it because there are lots of people meditating all around the stupa, so it's not even a a big deal. But actually, I should briefly share the first time that I meditated by the stupas right when I got to Bodhanath. I walked there, took a, I think I probably took a taxi. It's a fair ways from where I had been. And um, I got all set up and then I walked to the stupa and I got there late at night and I promptly sat down and just started meditating and had just this really very straightforward and very pleasant meditation. And when I finished meditating, I turned around and I had taken my sandals off and they were sitting behind me. The straps had been completely eaten off and they were just not there anymore. And they were these leather straps. This pack of dogs had snuck up behind me while I was meditating and silently chewed my sandals into into bits. But the footbeds were still there because they were made out of um, tires. And I turned around and I said, what the heck? (laughs) What kind of omen is this? You know, this is terrible. The dogs are eating my sandals while I'm meditating. So over the course of my time in Bodhanath, I befriended this really lovely man who had very frail legs that never had worked, I don't think. Or maybe he had lost them through some illness. And I met him on my walk between the place I was staying in the Bodhanath Stupa, and uh, he had this rug laid out, and on it he had all the tools that a sandal repair person has. And so I stopped and I started talking with him, and I said, well, what do you think about these sandals? Because some dogs ate off the straps. He said, oh, yeah, that's a pretty serious problem. And we kind of talked about different ways that we might fix them, and eventually we decided he could attach some new fabric to the little stub, the nylon stub that the dogs had not deigned to eat. So we 
fashioned these new sandals, and he also did this really fantastic job of resewing the leather footbed down to the tire. And watching him work is something that I'll never forget because he had this rug and he had these crutches, and he would slowly and deliberately poke a hole into the sandals and then thread a thread through it and then poke another hole and then thread the thread. Or maybe he poked all the holes at once and then threaded the threads, I forget. But it was sort of dignified and utterly unrushed. I often find that when I'm working on something like that, I work quickly because I think it should be taking less time than than it is. But there was this kind of overwhelming dignity with which he repaired these sandals. And we would talk, and um, over the next few days, I kind of would increasingly upgrade the quality of these sandals with increasingly exciting bits of uh, cordage. I actually, the cordage that I ended up using was the same cords that they would make the mala bead necklaces out of, and they had all these exciting colors. And so I got this big strand of golden cord. And I think it actually ended up being sort of an innovation on these sandals, which originated from a friend of mine in Seattle. Sort of a really exciting new sandal technology in the course of this, which is all these mini threads bound together in a bundle And then you can wrap them around your ankle several times and then with a very large stopper knot at the the end, thread it in between the cords, which creates a kind of easy to tie and untie little stopper knot and which slides and kind of readjusts as you run. So never before had I had sandals which were quite so excellent at running. And then these were running sandals already. And uh, they just felt like they perfectly fit my feet and they were light as a goose's feather. (laughs) Well, good thing you meditate so well that you didn't hear the dogs behind you. (laughs) Or so poorly. (laughs) 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 Yeah, they they were like, welcome to Kathmandu, man. Get some new sandals. (laughs) That was the first time that I really spent any time meditating around the Buddha stupa. And the second time was I got up early in the morning and decided to go meditate in the middle of the flock of pigeons. Because there was this persistent flock of pigeons that was always there around afternoon. They would leave late afternoon, but they were there in the morning because they'd be fed. And I thought, for whatever reason, that that would be a good place to sit and meditate. So I brought my little red blanket, and when it actually came to sitting in the middle of the pigeons, it occurred to me that I had to actually get there. So I walked very slowly, hoping that the pigeons wouldn't leave, and they were pretty much ignoring me until they detected some imperfect movement or some sort of rigidity or some potential danger in the way that I was moving. And they all scattered immediately, and they they sent this flurry of pigeon dust, you know, down on me. And and I sat down quickly, and they started to return, but this, uh, this man who was clearly part of the scene there Uh, He had a shop or, you know, he ran over and he said, scolded me. He said, what are you doing? You know, get out of here. You're just tormenting the pigeons, you know. And I said, no, 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 I'm so sorry. And I pretty much ignored him because he was just giving me such a hard time. And by that point, the din of the pigeons was setting in so that I couldn't really be heard. And I had an excuse to ignore him because he couldn't be sure that I could hear him over over all the pigeons. And then I think what he realized is that I was just sitting there pleasantly and that I wasn't trying to cause any trouble, so he went on his way. I can tell you a few things about that afternoon. I spent, I think, five hours meditating in the pigeons um, within 
the flock of pigeons. I was not in any particular pigeon, although I did in some ways encounter pigeon energy and sort of essence of pigeon. One of the big sort of limitations that kept coming up was, oh, geez, I hope these pigeons don't have any diseases that I'm going to get by overexposure. (laughs) You know, that's it. That Ethan was a good guy, but he died of pigeon. (laughs) But there was just something so kind of like perpetuating by being in the middle of this incredible sort of energy of these pigeons. It was like being able to sit in the middle of a torrential river and to be totally fine and to breathe underwater and also to have this form of belonging because after people started to walk into the square it wasn't look at that asshole who just you know disturbed all the pigeons it was like huh there's the the guy that is in the middle of the pigeons and I guess he's doing that and I guess maybe he does that you know maybe he always does that I don't know (laughs) maybe he is a pigeon tamer or something you know the pigeons are certainly you know sort of sitting on his knees and sort of pecking at him and he's not really giving them any trouble so so it was a, this form of belonging again there's this sort of like ah yes the pigeons have taken me in and I can this is a good place that I can stay and then just the incredible kind of procession so the Buddha stupa in Buddhanath is the site of many people who come expressly to walk in circles and gain uh, merit so there are these many different ways that people walk around. Some people are walking on their way to coffee, and some people are walking on their way between stores, and other people are strutting very determinedly with very sour faces as they wear out the soles of their shoes and intently prostrate themselves at the altar of Buddhism. And other people are sort of lollygagging and spinning the wheels and sort of going uh, other people i'm sorry to say are walking in the wrong direction <laughs> and i think actually lots of people walk in the wrong direction because if you if you don't walk the wrong direction in a whole circle it doesn't count if you're just going tangential it would be really a very huge inefficiency if the only way you could go from point a to b was to walk around the whole darn thing so so the people that just are going between shops don't walk in a whole circle but just sort of sitting there long enough that you'd see the same faces going by and you'd sort of be there with them too. You'd be in the flock of people and encountering this intense striving that we all have and this sort of search for meaning and this intense desire to be a part of something. Also sort of reflecting on how there are these traditions in in the world that appear to have some answers and that sort of bring people to them. And just sort of the, you know, the grand sort of procession and parade of humanity and love and beauty and complexity and suffering and starvation. So this was really very fertile soil for meditation. And soon it became the afternoon. And at some point, a deeper form of meditation had set in that felt like I was closer to this sort of um, intransigent landscape of indeterminate sort of uh, like time and I'm not sure that I mean what I said there. I'm not really sure what that means. Um, I, I think another simpler way of saying it would be the many directions seemed much more present and existing felt more gentle. It felt as though everything was bathed in a bright white light and that everything was both ancient and completely new at the same time and that I was existing in a kind of space close to but not completely without time. And it felt like I was part of a black and white photograph, but also part of 
a really tasty milkshake or a really nice glass of ice water at the end of a long summer day mowing the lawn. But there was this kind of like ancient feeling. And so I was pretty gratified that this was happening. And I said, oh, good. You know, this is, these pigeons are really doing me right. And I'm doing right by the pigeons. And I was kind of startled out of this by a hand emerging into my field of view and dropping some coins into my lap. And I looked up and there was a monk dressed in his monkey garbs, his, uh, you know, his long flowing, very comfortable monk clothing. And he gave me some money. <laughs> I said, what the heck's that about? You know, what, what was that for? And I sort of realized that, I don't know, that, that he was sort of, uh, sort of accepting me or sort of encouraging me. And that felt really very significant and profound. It sort of, you know, maybe he had seen me there and he said, here's a person who's actually doing something worthwhile as opposed to some guy who's just sitting in the middle of these pigeons like a total idiot. And so this in combination with my milkshake uh, vision <laughs> seemed like a really good thing. And I spent quite a while and sort of dawdled in that state for a while and was very comfortable. At this point, I had gotten very good at sitting in a like a half lotus or full lotus on just the pavement and that being very comfortable, which is very gratifying to have a body that is capable of achieving great comfort unmoving for long periods of time because there are sort of states of mm, concentration that you can enter when the body sort of quiets down. And so when I went home that night, I was looking in the mirror and I realized that I had a bright, bright, bright sunburn on my chest, except there was an, there was an imprint of the necklace that I had been wearing on my neck, which was a gnarled eyeball, which is a story that I haven't yet told. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> I feel a little bit bad that you have to wait until next Saturday to find out what this gnarled eyeball is all about. But you will be fine. We've got great episodes in between. Uh, you can listen to all of Ethan's episodes from the start to revisit this journey and then come to this beautiful climax of a gnarled eyeball. Uh, yeah, so you can go to laurachristine.us and access all the episodes of the show so far. Ethan's started episode 36, and I'll list them all in the show notes for this one. If you have any questions for Ethan, you can let me know. Go to laurachristine.us slash contact, and I will try to get answers for you. Until next time, we are sending all the love and then some more. We'll talk tomorrow. Thank you for exploring with me today. I would love to continue this conversation with you. We can do that at laurachristine.us. You'll find contact in the menu, or you can go to laurachristine.us slash contact, and you'll be taken right to it. Let's dive in a little deeper and see how fully we can flow with the duh. Thank you for being here. I would love to hear from you. Go to laurachristine.us to let me know your thoughts on this. And remember, as Rumi said, there are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Also, you can't fuck it up. I said that. Mm-hmm.